Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, uh, the New Books Network podcast for Africa. This is uh, Paul Bjork uh, from Texas Tech University, and I'm here today with uh, Professor Chima Kurie, who has just published a brand new book on uh, Nigeria and World War II. That's its title, Nigeria and World War II, Colonialism, Empire, and Global Conflict uh, on Cambridge University Press. Uh, The book is about uh, Nigerian society broadly uh, during uh, World War II and the transformative effect of World War II on uh, people's political outlook and social outlook uh, in Nigeria. So I'm happy to be here with uh, Professor Kurie, and I'd like to welcome you. Welcome, Chima. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Um, well, what I'd like to do is uh, just start by allowing you to introduce yourself. Um, what brought you into uh, history as, as scholarship and into a professorship as, as a teacher and a scholar? Uh, where did you start and uh, where, how, what was your journey? Uh, thank you, Paul. Um, I am from Nigeria originally. I have uh, uh, some background uh, of uh, studies in Nigeria. I, I, I did my undergraduate uh, studies in Nigeria at the University of Nigeria, Osaka, uh, where I had a degree in, in history and uh, education uh, with a minor in political science. Um, so after my studies in Nigeria, I began graduate work at uh, the University of Helsinki, uh, Finland, where I studied uh, uh, education, a master's degree in education with a minor in North American studies. I later went to the University of Bergen in Norway uh, and got a master's of philosophy in in history, uh, concentrating on African women, and uh, finally ended up in Toronto, at the University of Toronto, where I got a degree, uh, a PhD in African history. And and my work has been sort of uh, the intersection of, uh, of uh, economics, social dynamics of uh, Nigeria and gender, particularly in the a colonial and early post-colonial period. Um, so I, I joined uh, uh, t- teaching uh, in, in, in the United States here, uh, beginning at Central Michigan. I taught for two years at Rowan University in New Jersey before joining Marquette uh, in 2007. Um, so I've been, I've been at Marquette since then. Okay. Great. Um, well, so that's you know quite an international uh, scholarly formation. Um, how do you? Uh, what would you say about the, the kind of cultural differences and perspective differences that arise in uh, in in your education in these you know several different countries? What 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 did you? What do you observe just about kind of scholarship broadly as a uh, as a cultural endeavor uh, from this multicultural education. Yeah, uh, this is really very interesting because I think uh, uh, my experiences in, in, 
in Nigeria, in, in Africa, the Scandinavians and North America kind of shaped my outlook towards uh, uh, life generally, scholarship, and my approach to teaching. I, I draw from those perspectives. And, and uh, it's interesting, of course, Nigeria, I, I studied in Nigeria that was, uh, was part of the British Empire. So I, I was educated initially, you know, within the British uh, system of education. Um, but the Scandinavians opened other opportunities in terms of uh, understanding the world and seeing the world from different perspectives. Uh, the sort of social um, relevance, uh, the social relevance that uh, uh, Scandinavian societies, you know, uh, embodies the importance of uh, uh, the social system uh, that translates into education translates into uh, 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 every aspect of life in the Scandinavians, I think is important in contrasting those uh, with societies like the United States or Canada, where uh, the social welfare state is not really as strong as it is in the, in the, in the Scandinavians. So um, that in a way gives me some broader perspectives in terms of how states can also use um, uh, common resources, uh, uh, the resources of the state for the common good to elevate everybody within society. That is a little different from, um, you know, a purely capitalist society like the United States, where uh, the state uh, uh, ideas of uh, um, social support is not as strong as it is in the Scandinavians. Yeah, that is interesting. So, so really, that that time in Helsinki had a had a great uh, impact on 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 you. Yeah, certainly. Okay, and uh, the University of uh, Nigeria at Nsukka—that's pretty much the leading uh, institution in the country. Is that correct? Yes, it, it is. Uh, and, and of course, if you go back to the history of, of the University of Nigeria, it was set up um, to follow the American system of education. Uh, Namda Zikiwe, who was uh, the first indigenous governor of Nigeria and premier of the Eastern region, um, studied in the United States here. Um, he has a degree from Lincoln, um, a degree from University of Pennsylvania. So when he returned to Nigeria, and, and also being um, in the forefront of Nigerian nationalism. I, I think some of those uh, folks wanted something different for, from the British educational system. Um, and they, they looked at America, an American educational system, as more progressive than what the British had, you know, uh, left for Nigeria. So... Uh, the founding of the university as the first indigenous uh, institution or university in Nigeria came from that background. And Michigan State was, uh, was uh, um, a partner in establishing that university. So there is a lot of American influence um, in, in terms of uh, the structure of the university, the structure of the program, but also even in terms of the infrastructure and the early leadership of the university, it drew uh, largely from the United States. Interesting. I did not know that. 
Um, you know, certainly, uh, probably compared to perhaps any other African country, maybe with the exception of South Africa, the scholarly production of, of Nigeria is really quite prolific. Um, to what extent did, does that, to what extent, uh, maybe and this, this can kind of lead into the book itself, to what extent does your book um, communicate with or, or uh, debate with, what's, what's the right word, um, engage um, kind of the, the schools of thought that are prominent in Nigerian scholarship? Yeah, um, it's very interesting. Of course, you, you, you know the history of the emergence of African studies as a scholarly field. Um, most of these emerging also at the period of uh, um, African nationalism. So the establishment of uh, uh, different schools of history, whether at Ibadan, uh, which was the, the earliest uh, institution in Nigeria, or Suka School that emerged later, or the Zaria School, was really one way to affirm um, an Afri African identity in terms of the epistemological you know, issues and discourses around the relevance of African, of African history or African studies, uh, the methodology, uh, the reliance on on oral traditions and oral accounts as important tools for reconstructing the past. I think those came to play a very important role. But the early scholarship, of course, was very nationalistic in terms of uh, in terms of its uh, methodology. We, we we could look at that as a uh, a nationalist uh, nationalistic um, historiographical tradition emerging. Uh, in the 1950s and, and, and 60s, uh, championed by people like Kenneth Dike, um, Ajayi, and, and many others. Now, but I think I think um, they, there's of course a lot of reliance on 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 colonial sources for reconstructing the past. And I think I think most of what was written in that period is mostly political history. The idea of trying to elevate African history to be at par with European history or American history, and so on and so forth. Now, I think there's new forms of scholarship emerging that is going beyond that uh, idea of establishing the relevance of African history or African studies to one in which uh, uh, you know, some of us are looking inwards to, to understand how even within the colonial period, African voices mattered in terms of how we can understand broadly the dynamics of colonial history by also privileging the African experience and African perspectives of that history. So, so uh, you know, um, in my own work, I'm drawing from such uh, sources that uh, um, gives more perspective and, and, and a privilege African voices like petitions uh, and interpreting those petitions as voices that uh, can really, in some cases, counter the, you know, the mega narrative of colonial history or the reliance on colonial reports um, and and you know trying to write a history that that is much more balanced and drawing from within and from below 
to present those accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, maybe let's uh, start there. You, you mentioned that this book kind of grew out of a volume that you worked on on uh, petitions um, yes. to the to the government, and you know, so what seems to emerge here is sort of an interesting kind of uh, conversation in some ways happening between the petitioners, and some of these petitioners are actually kind of professional petitioner petition writers, or at least that's a uh, that's kind of a gig for them. Uh, and then, you know, the British propaganda itself and, and in that conversation developed a sense of uh, kind of a new a, a nationalist or a self-government kind of orientation. But it kind of emerges in this conversation between these petition writers and the ideals that they are uh, highlighting and British propaganda and the ideals they are highlighting, you know, perhaps only for, uh, you know, propaganda purposes and for the war. And yet it becomes something that they can't necessarily back off from after the war. Uh, how do these, what are these petitions and, and what is the voice that we hear in them? I, I think this is what makes my work unique. Um, the kind of sources that I've used. And I, I recall, you know, when I was working in my previous book, which was uh, a study of, uh, um, you know, colonial transformations in Eastern Nigeria, how agriculture was used as an instrument of colonial transformation and modernization. Now, you come across, um, you know, by the 1930s, people were using petitions as a way of uh, um, interacting with the colonial state. Of course, if we look back to the the up to the 1920s, particularly in the eastern part of Nigeria, um, the British were still, you know, trying to uh, uh, um, subdue uh, various, ref- you know, revo- you know, re- uh, revolts and and uh, uh, resistance to British uh, uh, colonialism. By the 1920s, late 1920s, those sort of uh, forms of resistance and negotiation or encounter with the colonial state had kind of ceased. Now, how did the Africans or particularly Nigerians uh, now negotiate or um, engage with the state in terms of, uh, uh, you know, their needs, their perspectives, and their concerns about the nature and uh, and structure of uh, colonialism? Uh, Petition was, was widely used. And I think because uh, the state also, the colonial state, accepted petitions as a preferred instrument of uh, appeals or uh, 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 supplications uh, to the state. So that was accepted. And by the 1930s, it was it was widely used that in places like Aba, you have the emergence of professional petition writers. Some of them were, you know, lawyers who wrote petitions for people for a fee. There was, of course, people who, you know, from the villages, school kids who wrote petitions for people in the villages. Uh, sometimes in in uh, in in very crude uh, English language, but it became a culture that that became accepted widely. And what you see, I think, when I use these petitions, I look at the process through which they were produced. Of course, one has to recognize 
that sometimes um, you know you you have to uh, think about who wrote these petitions. Uh, to what extent did they reflect the the ideas and 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 goals of those who sought uh, the petitions? Um, to what extent did the petition writers you know sort of influence uh, the nature of these uh, petitions and so on and so forth? Because most of the people uh, were um, were uh, not literate in writing or, or reading. So they, they, of course, took what was written for them. But the petition, I would argue, became important in terms of uh, 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 negotiating with the state. It became important in terms of uh, a process of expressing uh, demands and sometimes uh, um, um, expressing uh, the conditions of people in the very local levels of society because they you know they, they they talked about so many things they talked about you know price of of goods they talked about you know the, the you know the the the, the condition of uh, of people in the villages they talked about uh, uh, the high price of of, uh, of of you know the high the high cost of of goods um petitions talked about about court cases and and sometimes appeal for uh, you know, revision of court of court decisions. So, so they, they they engage a wide variety of of aspects of life within the colonial system, and I think it's an important tool that would present for us um, opportunity to gauge what was happening within society from the voices of of uh, uh, people who are often not considered when we write history. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So I mean so it makes a lot of sense. I mean the 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 petitions in your in your narrative kind of for the most part lurk behind the surface except for uh kind of right in the middle of uh chapter 3 or 4. Um but as you're saying that the petitions um they touch on almost every aspect of life. And so the the narrative you produce is a much uh, is is a fairly broad view uh, of Nigerian society, and yet not completely c- comprehensive. It, it deals largely with uh, wartime economic mobilizations, yes. uh, to some extent, propaganda. I mean, are these is are the topics you addressed more or less the topics that are addressed in the petitions? Yes. Um... These petitions range range from um, um, you know personal requests. They, re- they range from supplications. They deal with, as I mentioned, they deal with court cases. They are petitions dealing with taxes. So they, they deal with a range of issues within the colonial system. But I was much more interested in the petitions that were written as a result of wartime regulations. As a result of wartime policies, as a result, as a result of uh, the intervention of the British within the local economy, and the regulations that were put in place in order to achieve the overall objectives of, uh, you know, supporting the war effort. So these petitions deal absolutely with the Second World War, and uh, perhaps they are over. You know, my own account, there are over 240 of these petitions that I came across dealing with the Second World War, most of them from Eastern 
Nigeria, as, as well as uh, from the north. Now, certainly there were others, you know, from uh, Western Nigeria, um, people writing about, you know, the conditions of their lives as a result of uh, their children being, you know, at war or their family members being at war or husband being at war. So those petitions vary. But the ones I have used were certainly dealing with the Second World War. And I look at those petitions really as not part of, I mean, as not propaganda. They offer us perspectives into African lives. And they are, I think, in many ways, a lens through which we can understand the broader attempts of the colonial administration to control the society, to control um, the economy, uh, uh, to uh, control the movement of, of, of people and resources and directing those resources, particularly towards the war effort. So those Second World War-related petitions, in particular, I think, reveal the distinctively diverse ways groups of Nigerians, whether they were in the urban areas like Aba, uh, uh, where most of uh, uh, the, the foodstuff moving to the north were being railed, or in the rural areas, you know, how this group of people, diverse group of people, were affected by colonial regulations and the general conditions um, of, of the war itself. But broadly, I think they create a space to address, you know, um, uh, petitioners used, you know, these petitions to create a space where they addressed their own personal issues. So you have women writing to colonial administrators asking for permission to sell full stuff which had been regulated from the 1940s because the husband had gone to war and she had become the breadwinner in the family. The family basically depends on whatever she can, you know, whatever, you know, she can uh, uh, gather from thread uh, or from, from, from her labor. So, those petitions give you a window into the diverse effects of the war on different people, but also, again, some aspects of, uh, you know, the gendered nature of these effects on society. Uh, for women who had become head of households, now asking for the state for support. So those, those I think, in many ways, in many ways, uh, um, uh, help us to understand the 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 the, uh, the spaces that these uh, petitions opened for people uh, to engage also in the larger discourses that uh, you know went beyond their own immediate uh, environment um, and and concerns um, because certainly you see some of those petitions uh, people begin their petitions by talking about the their support for the British Empire the need for British Empire to be successful in the war and, you know, and um, the need for the, the British authorities to understand that their engagement, either in trade, um, was in many ways a support towards the war effort. So it, 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 those sort of dynamics, I think, important in understanding um, um, how their own personal issues became part of uh, the public discourse about war and the economic politics of the period. 
Okay. And I do, I think it's important that we address uh, those, the, the, the bigger kind of ramping up of, of economic uh, kind of extractive policy and so forth and what that all meant for the colonial state. But first, I just want to return a little bit. Uh, you know, I didn't mean to imply that the petitions are propaganda per se, but that they're, they're in conversation with British propaganda during the war where, you know, the British are fighting against the Nazis. And so there's this whole issue of, you know, uh, kind of uh, fascist, uh, you know, Nazi racism and, and other uh, kinds of things at stake. Um, and, and you talk quite a bit about that propaganda. How was how did that propaganda play out within Nigerian society? And how did Nigerians um, interpret and re, uh, reinterpret that propaganda in terms of their experience? Yes, I think this is a really uh, a very important uh, part of uh, of uh, of the book. Um, that, of course, if we look at what was happening during the war, propaganda became a very important tool that was used by uh, by both sides of uh, of uh, of uh, the conflict. Uh, the, the Germans uh, uh, used propaganda extensively, but uh, the British used propaganda to a very large extent in terms of uh, trying to um, achieve uh, the goals of uh, drawing the Nigerian population and drawing their support to garner their support um, towards the war effort. So um, I, I looked at propaganda as a central, as central to the kind of new discourses emerging during the war new discourses in terms of uh, uh, the uh, overall um, uh, motivation for fighting the war. What was Britain fighting for? What, what were the allies fighting for? These were interpreted in terms of uh, uh, a war between good and evil. And it was interpreted in ways that, that portrayed Germany as uh, uh, the evil and Britain as um, uh, part of the forces that would represent uh, um, um, liberty, um, you know, equality, self-determination, and so on and, and so forth. So um, I, I looked at that in, in understanding how and why Nigeria, that was under a colonial system, supported Britain and used the opportunity uh, uh, of, of their own media and, and, and their own elite to produce propaganda within Nigeria that galvanized the effort of local people and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and so on and so forth. So for, for me, um, um, you can you can perhaps see in a way some contradiction uh, between uh, colonial subjects uh, supporting Britain to that extent as a result of uh, you know the war when before the war uh, newspapers like the West African Pilot uh, Nigerians like Namdaziki who was in the forefront of Nigerian nationalism and who owned the West African pilot, which was very, which was very anti-colonial, became very pro-British. 
and encourage Nigerians to support the war because they saw that as critical to the preservation of uh, uh, liberty and equality, even though they were still under colonial control. And the contradictions, I think, um, um, in, in many ways, uh, sort of uh, dissipates when one understands that the Nigerians understood, the Nigerian elite understood that this struggle for between good and evil, of course, had broader implications if Britain lost the war. Now, as a colony of Britain, and many of these Nigerians understanding, having understood Nazi policies, their racial ideas and ideologies, that Nigeria was better off under Britain and than the possibility that Germany would have control of the African continent or Nigeria as a whole. The second aspect of it, of course, is to uh, look at what was already appearing in the news or rumor by 1938. There were arguments that Nigeria was going to be ceded to Germany as part of the appeasement that Chamberlain pursued with Germany. And by 1938, you know, you have you have Nigerian students in, in Ireland and in New York protesting that this should not happen. So those people in Nigeria, the elite in Nigeria, understood that the chances of Nigeria becoming a colony of Germany was there if Britain lost the war or if Britain you know, achieved this uh, project of appeasing Germany through compensating Germany for its losses in World War I with, with the colony of Nigeria. So, so th there were many reasons why I think Nigerians supported and they, 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 uh, or accepted British propaganda and indeed produced the propaganda themselves to uh, support the British war effort. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's, uh, that, I mean, that, that's a fascinating conversation. Um, let's look now at, uh, you know, kind of, I would say, a, a broad theme in your book, which is the intensification of uh colonial uh, economic policies during the war. How did the colonial state change during the war and and how did its policies change and how did that affect people's relationship to the government uh, during this period? Now, uh, I think it's important to, to understand the nature of the colonial economy in the interwar years. I have... Uh, um, argued that the overall economic condition in Nigeria towards the 1930s was less than ideal for the local population. There was the worldwide depression that occurred before World War II. Um, this affected the economic fortunes of the colonial state and uh, the native population. Uh, farmers were already facing challenging times uh, financially due to the low prices of produce. Um, and the, the prohibitive cost of imported goods. So between 1929 and about 1935, for example, the value of palm, palm produce, which 
was the most important um, export crop from Nigeria, uh, you know, dropped by over 70%, causing a substantial fall in farmers' income and government revenue. And indeed, there were, there were other scholars, you know, uh, you know, in, of Nigeria, like Moses Ocheno, who has argued that the drastic fall in the price of Nigeria's major agricultural export uh, undermined the personal economic uh, economies of uh, uh, producers, you know, looking at the north, you know, peanut producers, and diminished their ability to pay taxes and their capacity to produce uh, more. So, so there were economic challenges, um, you know, before before the war uh, began. Um, yet, Nigeria provided significant support uh, to Britain as soon as the war began. And I think one has to look at the nature of the economy and the central role that Nigeria played from understanding the role, the, the, the place of Nigeria amongst the uh, uh, colonial territories in West Africa in particular. Nigeria was perhaps the most viable, um, you know, with Ghana in West Africa for the, um, the resources that were needed, the labor and the financial support that, that came from, from, from you know, um, that uh, was needed to support the, the war. So, um, but one has to appreciate the ambivalent nature of colonial policies and economic policies and control in this period. Um, why did the colonial government appeal to Nigeria to see the war as a struggle between good and evil, which of course had an impact on Nigerians? The state also used subtle and less subtle strategies to enlist the support of Nigerians. One can think about a series of new regulations and laws that were introduced to control what was produced, how it was going to be distributed, and at what cost, at what price were they going to be sold, um, as well as price control. So I would, I, I would think that in many ways, um, there was a shift from what one may call a laissez-faire attitude in economic planning, where local farmers particularly controlled the production system, even if the marketing and export you know, sector was controlled by European companies. The local farmers had a lot of latitude in terms of producing and marketing their goods, but that changed as a result of the war. The state became more hegemonic, I would argue, by imposing new regulations and price control and introducing, introducing new laws that really um, 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 affected the local society. So I, I think in many ways, there was a lot of arm twisting going on. Um, and most of those were, of course, uh, um, uh, important in understanding uh, the support of Nigerians uh, but also uh, that the propaganda that was being put uh, and fed to Nigerians also, of course, had some some impact that they thought they were doing something in the name of the empire and in, in the name of the commonwealth, in the name of the commonwealth. But obviously, at the local level, people 
were more concerned with everyday survival. So we, we probably also have to look at it from two perspectives in terms of how it affected people in the in the, in the villages and the rural areas and, and how people in the urban areas like workers and others were affected, you know, by these new economic uh, conditions. Would you argue that uh, that this kind of intensification um, and uh, more kind of state-controlled economy, or at least state-directed economy, did, did that ever demobilize, or did that more or less continue even after the war ended? Of course, they, they, it, it did continue. Um, it did continue after the war. Uh, the war ended. Um, we know that some of the uh, uh, programs that were put in place during the war, like the marketing boards um, that, that were introduced, continued and, and they became even more extractive, you know, during uh, the, uh, you know, the late colonial period and, and the early um, uh, post-colonial period. So most of these policies continued. Um, if you look broadly also at uh, the nature of uh, the economic system and planning, the, the emphasis that colonial officials placed on export produce, agricultural produce for export continued in the post-colonial period. Um, in, in fact, in places like Eastern Nigeria, where the state had resisted uh, attempts to establish uh, plantations uh, because of of the nature, uh, the, you know, the nature of the land tenure system, because of the high population density, the post-colonial state began immediately with the, you know, um, towards the end of colonialism in the late 1950s, with um, uh, the same economic planning, but introducing um, plantation agriculture, for example. So, so you have the establishment of the you know, farm settlements in eastern Nigeria, you have community plantations, uh, you have, uh, um, you know, um, uh, systems set up uh, because they recognize also that um, any sort of uh, uh, development within the society um, has to be funded with uh, revenue from agriculture. And the only source of revenue coming to the post-colonial state was through agricultural export. So the emphasis in that area continued. The extraction uh, continued. We, we mentioned University of Nigeria and Sukha earlier on. The money that built the University of Nigeria and Sukha came from the Eastern Nigerian Palm Oil Marketing Board. This was the, where the revenue came from. So, so farmers continue to be paid artificial prices for their goods, while in many cases the state, you know, um, drew a lot of revenue that otherwise would have gone to uh, to farmers. So that level of state control that began during the war continued in the post-colonial period, and it did continue till in Nigeria till about uh, the you know the uh, period when uh, palm, I mean, uh, petrol became the most important source of export for the country. 
Right. Yeah. And that, that was transformative. Um, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about now the society itself, uh, during this period of, of, uh, kind of economic intensification. And you, you touch on a wide variety of, uh, transformations that are happening here. And at this point, I'd like to kind of have you put your own work in conversation with, uh, Frederick Cooper's work on, uh, this period and kind of the, the long history of decolonization, because uh, he's looking at many of the same kinds of issues. Um, wh- where does your work fit uh, in regards to Frederick Cooper's work? And uh, let me let me just uh, quote that um, Frederick Cooper writes in the introduction to his book uh, on decolonization and the labor question. Um, he writes, the era, the era of decolonization was a time when the range of possibilities seemed to open up only to close down again. Uh, and he writes further that, African labor movements seized the new discourse of administrators and turned assertions of control into demands for entitlements. So, you know, he's looking at these kinds of conversations, in particular among the Africans who were engaged in, uh, I don't know how you kind of, quote unquote, the modern section of the economy, the the export-oriented part of the economy, um, and, and who are laborers kind of in that European sense, as opposed to, um, you know, more of, of an African village uh, agricultural context. Um, w- what's happening here in society and, and how is this transforming relationships among families, among uh, villages, uh, among cities, city and rural or urban and rural areas uh, and the state as a whole? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I, I you know, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, Cooper's uh, analysis fits uh, well into part of what was going on here. Yes, I think if I may begin from the nature of the African worker in, in, in this period or in Nigerian worker in this period, I think the, the Nigerian worker in both the rural and urban areas, whether they were wage workers or non-wage workers, we're organizing in ways that relied on the synergy of both streams. I think on one level, you have African farmers whose labor produced the critical export products that supported both the household and the colonial state, but who were also organizing and agitating for better prices for their products. The Eastern Eastern Nigerian you know, example is 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 well documented. On another level, you had wage workers in places like the mines whose unionization became an impetus for the development of new forms of relationships between the workers and the state. Now, one can think about, again, what was happening in the Enugu coal mines and, 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 and uh, the, the, the challenges that uh, uh, people were facing, but the kind of social movements that was was emerging from 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 that. So so um, whether they were wage workers or non wage workers or farmers, they, they, they were they were these sort of social movements uh, emerging. Now what I find interesting is that at both levels, you have new forms of political assertion that sought to demand better conditions for the the African population, and I think I have generally use the same kinds of uh, methodological frame that Cooper used to portray how different layers of society, 
farmers, women, wage workers were thinking and acting differently from colonial officials who were envisioning um, a well-ordered, you know, like Cooper would argue, a well-ordered society driven by the concept of planned development. Now, those kind of planned development sometimes run contrary to what was the reality for these societies. And as Cooper suggested, you know, colonial officials in, you know, drawing from uh, both French and British uh, imperial circles, um, we are planning for a future that did not exist. So in, in reality, I think, I think they didn't understand the context in which some of these uh, societies operated or how they were using the opportunities that emerged in this period to make claims that otherwise didn't exist before World War II. So the rethinking of the pre-war development models, I think, changed the idea of the colonies. You know, um, if, we, if we look broadly at, at uh, how the state responded, uh, which I think Cooper also talks about, um, the, the rethinking of the pre-war development models changed. And the idea of the colonies paying for themselves, you know, was also re reconsidered, uh, particularly, you know, um, as the war, you know, went on. So, so uh, initially, of course, we know that colonies were expected to be self-sufficient, uh, uh, to, to have only those services which could afford or maintain, you know, could be maintained by its own resources. Now, with a few exceptions, um, of course, we know that colonies were not given any 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 grant in aid or something like that. But we see that in this period, um, there were some attempts by Britain to link its African colonies to the economic reconstruction programs of the post-war period. Uh, this is something that already began in 1929 with the Colonial Development Act. Not much was done because there was no fund actually to carry out those projects. But by 1940, you have the Colonial Development and Welfare Act, which I think in many ways um, began to make you know, some provisions for funding of development projects within Africa. So, so the end of the war, however, I think created um, other problems like domestic labor problems. Um, the cost of living continued to rise and well into the 1950s, the cost of living continued to rise in Nigeria. The control of food prices continued well after the Second World War had ended. And those sort of economic dynamics, I think, were sometimes things that the colonial state did not plan for. Now, the reforms and innovations introduced, I think, were pursued within the context of an economically weak British empire, as I have as I've argued here in, in my book. Now, it was also emerging in the period of rising nationalism in the colonies, like Nigeria, but also a period in which you have a welfare-minded labor government emerging in Britain. So in the political arena, there were already a sense of disillusionment among Africans, particularly the educated you know, uh, elite in Nigeria from the 1930s. 
these energies were channeled in the articulation of the future of Nigeria, as, as we can see with the development of uh, uh, political parties like the Nigerian Youth Movement, emerging in 1934, right? And uh, um, the emergence of local press and, and local presses, which Namdi Azikwe and his, you know, chain of newspapers uh, championed. So, so I, I think there were so many things going on in this period that that um, brought some level of synergy uh, between uh, wage workers, non-wage workers, um, the political class or political elite, but organizing in ways in which I think. Um, may be different from uh, the way uh, these sort of uh, sentiments were galvanized and channeled into political opportunities in some other parts of uh, of uh, the African continent. Right. Now, do you think that uh, that these changes, and as you know, I mean, a lot of this was happening maybe at the elite level already in the 30s, um, but did a wider class of uh, of uh, Africans in Nigeria start to think of themselves in maybe in terms of citizenship in a new way as a result of the war and their participation in the war and kind of making a claim on citizenship because of their contributions? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, um, certainly that was that was uh, uh, that was taking place. Um, there were people who. I think as a result of the war and the, um, the, the framing of the propaganda that, that was fed to Africans during the war, that this was a war uh, being fought as, as part of, a, uh, as part of uh, protecting the ideals of a, uh, democratic institutions and structures as part of uh, uh, protecting um, self-determination uh, as part of uh, giving people an opportunity to live in democratic institutions and structures. So if these were the ideals, uh, Nigerians bought into that rhetoric and at the end of the war, they sought to claim those by asserting um, uh, that having participated in the war, they also should have an opportunity to benefit from the gains of of the war uh, vis-a-vis the idea of uh, democratic institutions and self-determination. So the nature or idea of uh, um, uh, citizenship of the empire was defined in terms of self-determination, which was projected by the British Empire and which was projected as part of, you know, the ideals for which the war was fought. And they were willing to claim that. Now, you have also different classes of people making those claims. For those soldiers who returned from the war, they saw... um, the end of the war, um, they felt that they were entitled to certain gains. Uh, they saw that they were entitled to jobs. They were entitled to allowances. They were entitled to other forms of uh, opportunities 
that could be offered by the state. Now, interestingly, most of uh, the educated elite, including people like Namda Zikiwe, the West African pilot, immediately the war ended, the editorial stance of the West African pilot changed from that of the support for the British Empire or the Commonwealth of the British Empire to that of uh, Nigeria's self-determination. And this is sort of very important because uh, um, and, and, and uh, Zeke was detained briefly. The newspaper West African Pilot, was, which was very pro-British during the war, was banned um, for some time before the ban was lifted again. So at that level, you know, the educated elite were drawing on the basic uh, promises that were, were made during the war. Uh, even though the British didn't envision uh, the end of uh, of empire uh, soon after the end of the World War, but there were things happening in other places that was influencing how people were beginning to think. For example, those Nigerians who fought in in Asia, who interacted with with Indians, saw what was happening in India with India's fight for independence. They were influenced by that. In official circles, you know, you have British officials uh, asking for Nigerians to be brought back as soon as possible because they were being influenced by the sense of nationalism in India, that this is not going to be good. And even within Nigeria also, they drew those kind of contrasts in along ethnic lines. They saw the Hausa as people who were not going to make trouble, but that the Igbo were already being influenced by the sort of political discourses going on in India, that if there was going to be trouble in Nigeria, it was going to come from the Igbo or people from the East. And those, of course, were, you know, came to um, be true to what happened in Nigeria's fight for, for independence. So they were drawing from those sort of ideas and ideals, but they were also drawing from, you know, understanding the major, uh, the dynamics that was going on within uh, the global society, uh, the, the promises of the, of the, um, the, the um, League, you know, League of Nations and self-determination, you know, part of uh, Wilson, uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson's 14-point uh, agenda. People were drawing from right. that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, and and now thinking that now it's you know now after World War II that it's really now is the time Africa's uh, can no longer delay uh, that claim any longer. Yes, yes. So, so I, I mean, I think you know those those kinds of issues were influencing uh, late colonialism uh, or nature of uh, colonialism um, in Nigeria. Uh, so apart from the political organizations and newspapers that were beginning to emerge, uh, you have professional unions also emerging within this period. And in Nigeria, you have you have things like the Railway Workers Union, which was formed in 1932. It became very um, vocal, contributing uh, financial and moral support to the nationalist movement. You have so many 
are professional organizations and unions emerging? The Post and Telegram Workers Union. You have the Taxi Union. You have the Women's Sellers Union uh, forming in the 1940s. Some of them, as a result of the challenges of Second World War, you have the Nigerian Students Union forming in 1939. You have, uh, you know, uh, unions, uh, including Nine Soilmen uh, Removers Union forming in 1942. So you have this spreading through every layer of uh, Nigerian society. But they're also... A blooming of, of civil society and so Yes, ways. yes, yes. And, and, and so, so these unions, you know, one way uh, they contributed in, in many ways to the nationalist movement. And uh, there was, of course, the, the emergence of uh, radical militant associations like the Zekist movement, which equally impacted on uh, the, the, the nature of Nigeria's uh, independence movement. Um, and unlike the previous, you know, battles of uh, social movements, which which was uh, uh, non-violent, the, the Zikis movement, you know, really you could look at that as the as the military wing of the nationalist movement. They 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 were advocating and instigating, you know, um, um, you know, unions to go on on strikes and and to revolt. They became more militant, um, you know, from 1946 and demanded... And, and really kind of going beyond even the uh, kind of where uh, Azikiwe himself was in terms yes. of his politics, the, the, this yeah. movement in his name yes. uh, became more radical than he was. Yes, it, it became very radical uh, than, than Zeke was. And, uh, um, you know, his his own tactics was, was quite different. And uh, they... The Zikis movement was uh, uh, more radical. De- they demanded reforms. They demanded inclusion. And you can see how uh, they challenged, including NCNC, they challenged the, um, the Richard Constitution because they saw it as really something that was being imposed on Nigerians. There was, Nigerian con- no, there was no Nigerian contribution to that. So that process of sending delegations and the you know, petitioning, you know, which uh, people like Zeke engaged in began to change and and um, in, in very important ways as a result of uh, the emergence of these militant uh, unions. And and really many would argue, you know, scholars like Eloa and others have argued that, you know, those in, in many ways uh, uh the Zikis movement sought to undermine and destroy the administration through strikes, boycotts, and 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 and, and violence, if if necessary. So, um, and 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 this was quite different from what was going on uh, before the end of World War Two. All right. Well, uh, you know, we reached about an hour here now, and uh, we, I want to wrap up, but I want to make sure we address uh, your book. In, in the field of military history as well. And I recall uh, in my research in Tanzania, uh, you know, among other things, I mean, a lot of these themes have some parallels in Tanzania, but talking with um, the uh, veterans of World War II, uh, you know, who still had uh, the, a legion in Dar es Salaam, and, uh, you know, and, and they mentioned some of these same things, you know, this, uh, the experience both of what they contributed broadly to 
the British cause, uh, but more specifically, sometimes mentioning, you know, they were in Burma or other places and uh, and realizing just a bigger world out there in which, you know, maybe Africa wasn't uh, as different as they thought it was from, you know, from the way that uh, colonial discourse structured, you know, this this huge kind of civilizational difference between Africa and Europe. And they realized um, actually Europe's not uh, as kind of as different as they might claim to be and yet let alone other parts of the world. And so that there was a, that, that was a major aspect of the experience um, as well as uh, you know, Michelle Moyd's work on uh, soldier, African soldiers in the German army or in very early uh, colonial history in, in uh, Tanganyika. Um, and just kind of the way that that structured a certain um, ideal of masculinity and the benefits that a soldier got by participating as a soldier so, I mean, maybe those are a couple of themes. I mean, what is the experience of soldiers and uh, how did that shape um, kind of the the ideal of soldiering, of, of, uh, of, kind of military martial virtues in Nigerian society? And, and what, what, were the, what is the legacy of all of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think this is really important in when we look after... Um, you know, the place of the military uh, in, in, in African history um, is perhaps important to, to uh, you know, think, think about this uh, at two levels. On one level is the understanding of the role of indigenous military as tool for political organization and state building. Uh, this was what was, of course, happening in Africa before the, uh, the uh, colonial period. On another level is the centrality of the military in the making of colonial societies and the subjugation of African societies. Uh, so, so the colonial system was a militarized uh, system. Uh, it's a system that was not democratic and the military structures that was established was an instrument of uh, you know, colonial pacification uh, of, uh, of African societies. So, Ironically, of course, we see that Africans were co-opted as instruments in some of these uh, early military engagements in Africa, uh, in places like Nigeria, uh, you know, military expeditions. Um, and Africans, of course, were also used in extensively in imperial warfare uh, wars, uh, World War One and World War Two. So, in the case of Nigeria. We, we have perhaps two uh, layers of this. Most of the early colonial military forces in Nigeria were drawn from the northern region and from the Middle Belt, who were seen as the martial race. The right. participation a very, tip, a very typical British view of uh, this yes. idea of martial races was something yes. they, that was uh, all over Africa. Yeah. Yes. Um, most of those from Eastern Nigeria, I mean, Eastern Nigeria and so on, were not drawn into the war until, into the military until World War II, uh, when you had a lot of recruitment from the Eastern region. But even at that, if you look at colonial sources and diaries of some of these British soldiers, they're talking about the physique of different, you know, groups and ethnic groups in Nigeria and how 
uh, that fitted or suited, you know, military um, um, profession. So the military was um, uh, new to many groups in Nigeria who, for the first time, they were participating in that, whether locally or, or, or you know, abroad for the first time. And it meant really uh, 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 a lot for those uh, uh, soldiers who, for the first time, were engaging. There were people who engaged, if you look at some of the sources, because they saw this as an opportunity to assert their manhood uh, and, and, and to, to show that, you know, they were men. Uh, when they returned from the military, there were those who used their experiences in the army to create new social status within society, uh, to, to create new sense of uh, power and authority that did not exist before their participation in the military. And you have in places like Eastern Nigeria, you know, the, these guys who returned from the army, um, um, you know, forming their own associations and, uh, or, or their own groups, uh, or um, age groups or age groups are taking their names after you know um, uh, uh, some of these areas that they participated in the war. Like you know, we, we have a group in my own village that 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 are called you know you know uh, the the French as an age group. So that meant a lot, and they. You come from a society where power and authority in some areas is structured by age, and and the the, the experiences in the army and the, the you know change a lot of that. That that uh, you you have a, you have a, a new class of people who derive their power and authority because they had become they were part of the state instrument um, as soldiers. And they returned to these villages and, and transformed, you know, villages in many ways. They, they, they came back with money, not just money in terms of which enhanced their status, but they also have have military, uh, you know, military fatigues and, and 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 things that were not were not available to ordinary folks in society. So they became sort of a different class, and that soldiering experience, I think. Um, give them a sense of new identity, uh, uh, a new sense of masculinity and manhood. And you see, in my book, I talk about how some of these soldiers were willing to pay so much money for bride wealth to assert, you know, they, that they have arrived uh, to um, make claims that, you know, they belong to a different class uh, within society. So, so those sort of social changes and dynamics were were things that uh, um, you know were were introduced as a result of uh, their experiences but of course many of them also had interacted with people uh, from other parts of Africa for the first time um, many of them had met with uh, people who they had not even within Nigeria they had not been able to engage with um, for the first time and those had important impact and implications in terms of, uh, you know, creating a sense of uh, comradeship within Nigeria, within Africa, that, you know, some Africans began to see themselves as Africans rather than coming from 
different ethnic or different colonies within within the continent. So, so those were, I think, important in terms of reshaping identity for most of these soldiers. Do you think that uh, this kind of status and and this style of authority that um, emerged as a result of this did that shape uh, some of the prestige of the military uh, that kind of became part of Nigerian politics for in the 1960s and 70s and 80s? Uh, I think to some to some extent, uh, I mean, I would argue that the military had um, always uh, been seen as important and as a, um, an important element in terms of uh, of state structure and uh, the mechanisms of uh, state institutions. This is something I think derives from the nature of the colonial state itself. The colonial state was a militarized one. Most of the early colonial administrators were people who you know, came from military background. So I think in, in many ways, this also influenced the nature of African politics, even in the early post-colonial period, that sometimes, you know, the, um, the, the, the sort of system of, of government and authority, you, you know, that is often referred to as diarchy, you know, where you have this, the military, you have the civilians, and they're all part of, of, the, of the institution and structures of the state, was what I think many early um, post-colonial states in Africa uh, were very comfortable with as an instrument of organizing the state, because many of them came from that background. Many of them were, you know, also people who, you know, had, had been part of the, you know, colonial military. I mean, uh, you know, um, colonial army, not, not in Nigeria in particular, but, you know, there were, there were many African countries where that was a, that was a, you know, that was the case. So um, the military system rubbed off. And I think in many ways it became prestigious, you know, over time, you know, to be in the military because in places like Nigeria, the military had dominated politics for most of its, uh, you know, um, post-colonial life. And so joining the army and and becoming part of the army was also seen as, as, as an, you know, as a, as a route to um, uh, political participation, um, even if in most cases those were not uh, democratic. Yeah. Okay. Well, we've taken a lot of your time here. Um, maybe let me just ask you in conclusion: Are you? Uh, where do you look now? What What do you foresee as your next uh, research project? Oh, um, I'm working in, on a new book project that is tentatively titled House Island, um, West African Labor, Plantation Agriculture, and Violence on uh, Spanish Fernanda Po. Uh, Spanish Fernanda Po is, is a, um, you know, was a Spanish colony of uh, uh, the Gulf of Guinea. And the work uh, is attempting to explore the use of West African labor, uh, mostly contract labor, on the Spanish plantations. Uh, on the island of Fernanda Po, 
during the first three quarters of the 20th century. And of course, you know, you know that the, the Spanish plantations uh, on, on Fernanda Po um, really manifest the largest labor smuggling and trafficking network in colonial West Africa, bringing over 10,000, you know, migrants uh, um, into the area. So Fernanda Po came to represent what I think was a space where British, different colonial power, and, and, and the Spanish imperial interest blurred the questions and meanings of free and unfree labor, and unfree labor. So, so um, we can go back to. I mean, I'm looking at the the, the uh, from the forced migration, I uh, mean, recruitment of uh, Liberians in 1920s to the mass export of indentured Nigerians, beginning with the, um, you know, from the 1930s and culminating in the Anglo-Spanish Labor Agreement of 1942, which I think in many ways, you know, I'm trying to argue in this book, reveals the ambivalent attitude of colonial powers and the complex interplay between British, Spanish colonial officialdom and African workers um, over forced labor for private colonial enterprise like the cocoa plantations. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's almost as if there's a full circle. I mean, if my understanding is correct, some of you know the first the first uh, people exported from Africa as slaves were actually put to work on some of those islands just off the African coast before they started being exported all the way across the Atlantic. And so, in some ways, you have just uh, some sort of continuity across this whole question of forced labor. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And I, I think I think it's important to look at that in terms of contemporary, you know, labor conditions and yeah. what is still mm-hmm. happening. And perhaps also to uh, look at a role that um, Afro uh, um, American Liberians were were playing in really supporting and sustaining this labor regime that was you know, really termed slavery um, by by the League of Nations in 1930, um, having come from that background themselves in the United States, you know, so. Right, yeah, that, that's, you know, that is one of the, that, a great irony of history that the yeah. Liberia, founded in some ways by freed and uh, Af- African-Americans, yes. then just because of the, you know, the power of uh, economic structures and the way that economic structures kind of overwhelm uh, political ideology. That's interesting. Yes. Interesting. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, we've taken a lot of your time and I really appreciate this uh, in-depth conversation on uh, Nigeria during World War II. And, thank uh, you very much. You know, pe- Good. People can certainly uh, find your book. It's on Cambridge University Press, uh, Chima Korie, Nigeria and World War II, Colonialism, Empire and Global Conflict. Thank you, Chima, and I look forward to seeing your future work. Thank you.